So my name is John Barth, and I'm with uh, PRX. Um, and one of the great things about my job is that I have so much wonderful contact with so many ranges of producers. Um, but the hard part, of course, is that uh, the other side of that is that we have to work a lot with stations. Um, <laughs> the stations are in between you and the people you want to hear your great stuff. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of that reality, and uh, I hope that we're going to be able to unpack some really great uh, takeaways and really hard rules from the experiences of these producers. And there's another panel uh, on the same topic tomorrow afternoon, but with different people. So we're going to mix it up. So if you don't get a chance to get your answers today, or you don't hear what you were looking for today, there's another chance uh, uh, tomorrow. So, OK. So um, first, some context setting. Um, uh, whenever I think of the environment in which we're working in, I think a lot about The Matrix, okay? And you're all familiar with the movie, right? And what Morpheus was able to expose, all right? There's the known world and the things that we're really familiar with because they're right in front of us, and then there's a hidden world. And so the known world is the world that we work in, which is like very set institutions. And so um, NPR, uh, PRI, APM, and then about 800 non-commercial stations, these are kind of like the building blocks, the, the formative structure, the architecture that we all deal with every day. We're either inspired by what they put on the air, we either identify with this institution locally, this is how we connect with a lot of audio, but this is kind of like the known universe. And the other side of it, of course, is this emerging universe, much more diverse, many new players, um, ones trying many different things. And this is the universe that probably most of you do occupy. Um, this is more familiar turf than those previous institutions. These things compete a little bit. They're not entirely separate. There's lots of crossover. Those institutions, NPR, PRI, APM, and the stations, they all have elements of this, but maybe just not prominent. So if you spend any time, let's say, with uh, NPR Digital Services, lots of creative people there who are still playing in the same creative space that you are. So everything is in some kind of transition, but these worlds are existing in some kind of parallel. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I couldn't get everybody on this screen. Um, it's really diverse and astounding. You all know that. So what's the battle? What's the game that we're in? And it's about surviving, outwitting, outplaying, outlasting, um, not only the institutions, but the interests of the audience. So you have, you know, we hope you have lots and lots of different listeners, but they have millions of different choices. And so how do you position yourself and how do you thrive and stay creative and keep appealing to people and also satisfying yourself? How do you still keep your creative energy going? You know, uh, Ira said last night again and again, we're here to make good radio. What's good radio? What's good audio? What's good tape? Well, you know it in your gut, and you know when you hit it and when you don't hit it. So how do we get to survive and really create the kind of audio that we think frames the next experience of what's either called public media or public radio or whatever you want to call it? But you're defining the new landscape. And I think it's also important to realize, too, that even though you may be existing you know, in your own um, you know, mixing session, uh, it's just you and the mic out there in the field, your own creative vision, uh, you're not alone. And I think one of the great values of something like the Third Coast Festival is that you can look around, you can realize this island is packed with people just like you. So when I look around this room, I get so excited because when I started in public radio, it was like a big secret. You know, it was like Terry Gross and All Things Considered for 90 Minutes in 1972. And that was it. 
that was all. Now look at this. This is big. The attendance at this conference is actually as big or bigger than the Public Radio Program Directors Conference. That is astounding. This is a whole new world. So you're not alone, and one of the points of this panel is to really share really concrete advice about how do we move from being creative individuals to successful, sustaining, stable folks so that you can really do the work that you want to do. I think it's really important, too, to take a look at what the true opportunity is. And so this is almost a secret slide. I think of this as like the Pentagon Papers. Um, there you go. So you think that uh, the networks have it figured out? Look at that drop. Hmm. Millions of dollars into daily news programs, highest brand recognition in public radio, and the audience is dropping. So that's a problem. It's a problem for institutions. It's a problem for all of us. Where's this audience going? What are they doing? Or is that you? Can you fill that gap? That to me is actually very exciting. That's listeners looking for something else. Is it gonna be your work? Now take a look at this. Most powerful programs according to audience data in public radio. Car Talk, independently produced. It's distributed by a network, but it's independently produced. Weekend edition, wait, wait, independently produced. Weekend edition, morning edition, marketplace where I helped start the show. That was very much an indie culture when we began. Prairie Home Companion, indie roots. ATC, what do you know? Very much an independent culture. So there is room in this ecosystem for what you're doing on broadcast, but certainly with listeners because they want creative vision. So beyond the news, there's lots of different ways to engage listeners. And that's what's so exciting because you each have different visions. So when I try to you know, figure out what we're doing here, um, it's really exciting because there is real promise for individual producers with their own ideas. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. The second thing is that there are many different paths. We're in this huge, complex, churning media environment. We have no idea where it's going, but you are beginning to reset the entire landscape. So there are many paths, and we're gonna hear three of those paths, but you have your own paths, and I think there are just as many lessons that we wanna hear about when we open up to Q&A. Um, what are some lessons? Um, you know, are there some things we should all know about production? That's why you're in a lot of these sessions, but um, what have they been able to figure out? Uh, what about issues of integrity, that balance between your creative vision and either you work with an institution, you engage with an audience, or you have to engage with a funder? What's the, what are the integrity issues there? Um, where do you find the money? Um, how do you make great audio? What is great audio? Uh, can we get to some common ground about that? And then what about your creative vision and beyond broadcast, beyond radio, beyond uh, standard platforms? Maybe you want to go into... Um, uh, animated graphics, maybe you want to go into video. So what are some of the options there, and, and how do you maybe begin translating one creative vision into another? We work with a guy by the name of David Gerlach, who does a really interesting uh, program and podcast called Blank on Blank. Very quickly, he went into animated uh, uh, imaging uh, with audio, and it's, it's just fantastic, but he's really created a whole new look. Um, we heard uh, you know, some references to get big or go home, okay? Is that really the choice? Is that what you want to do? What if you really do want to stay small? What is that, what's the path for you there? Um, what about the most painful choice? And I think that we have a PRX hear about this all the time, the choice between audience and money. Do you want to offer your stuff for free? Is that your future because you want a big audience? 
Um, or is there a way to balance out these two and still answer the integrity question of your own creativity? Uh, what about the future of radio? Uh, is there anything there? Is radio becoming just a promotional platform for what you're doing off air? Um, when we look at public radio and we look at the role of stations, we have big questions about their role in the future because of what you're doing. Um, and finally, what about the relationship between you and your listeners, your fans? Can you develop a community? And actually, in the end, who owns your thing? Does the audience at some point own your creativity? Um, when I used to work in uh, the early days of the internet, we used to have the standard boring executive joke. Uh, what happens when the deer get guns? And that's what's happened to the audience. The audience is not passive listeners. They're making the media. Now, where does that leave everyone else? And I would say that some of that decline in that listening may be a sign of that. So, so who do we have on this panel today? So we have, uh, you know, just to remind you, Amy Costello in the middle from Tiny Spark, uh, Jesse Thorne from Bullseye and Maximum Fun and uh, so many other productions, and then uh, Ben Walker from Too Much Information in WFMU. Um, so, Amy, I wanted to start with you, and if you don't mind, I, can I just tell, you know, you and I have worked a little bit. Um, uh, Amy is a really experienced uh, uh, foreign correspondent. Uh, she's a really aggressive, smart producer. Um, she's done something that I don't think very many people do in podcasting, which is approach investigative reporting and depth reporting in a podcasting environment. I mean, some really gutsy stuff. She's done stories that no one else has done, and she's been able to carve out a pretty amazing niche. So, um, you want me to drive? I can I'm do that? Thinking, do, can we switch? Yeah, we can switch. All right, I think yep. I'd be more comfortable Great. standing up. Great. And we'll take your questions at the end. Okay? Oh, Thanks. I understand. I've done a lot of 10 minutes, so I'm setting my watch so that I don't go over. Um, this is the um, image that uh, led me to launch my podcast, Tiny Spark, which is aimed at igniting debate about the business of doing good. And. Uh, this is an image of children on a play pump. And for those of you who haven't heard of a play pump, it's a child-powered merry-go-round. So they spin and spin, and a device beneath the ground begins to turn, and that pumps clean, fresh drinking water to communities all over Africa. I came across this story, did a story on it for the public radio program, The World. Um, I then went to the PBS television program, Frontline World, I was going to do a story from Darfur from them, for them, which I did. And they said, but don't you have any positive stories from Africa? And I said, I do. The play pump. It's amazing. So I did a very favorable story for Frontline World that was initially supposed to be just an online story. And it was so uh, welcomed by viewers that they decided to broadcast it. And people just fell in love with this technology, with this innovative social entrepreneur behind the technology. And a year later, I was invited to the Clinton Global Initiative Conference, where they said they're going to have a big announcement about the play pump. $16 million going to the play pump to roll it out across 10 African nations. I was thrilled. I thought, this is great. Kids are going to get clean drinking water. Women won't have to go at the old pump like this anymore. And most importantly, kids have fun. And I then got a tip a few years later that something had gone wrong with the play pump. So I started doing some digging and went back to Mozambique to follow up and found that everything that could have gone wrong with this technology had gone wrong, from financial malfeasance to the equipment not being maintained to communities rejecting it. And 
that experience when I went to Mozambique and sat in the sand with women whose old reliable hand pump, which had been working for years for them, had been taken out and replaced with one of these, which never worked from the beginning and had never been maintained for more than a year. And they now had to walk 40 minutes to the next community to get their drinking water every day. I felt responsible for that, in part, because it was my positive glowing coverage about this technology that led to lots of suffering for many people in Africa. And that made me realize that you can do a lot of harm on the road to trying to do good. And that media savvy, social entrepreneurs can be great, but they need to be interrogated, as do ideas of doing good. And my feeling is that in the media, we tend to tell people who say, I'm gonna to go to Africa and bring clean drinking water to children there. I'm gonna to go to El Salvador and you know, bring new technology there. I think in the media, we tend to give people like that a free ride for the most part. We say, that's great, you're gonna go do good, you're gonna go bring drinking water to children, what could be better? Let me give you money to do that. And I think that we need to start really critiquing and analyzing ideas of doing good because it's a trillion dollar industry in this country. The nonprofit sector is more than a trillion dollars in this country. There's a lot of good being done, and I'll get to that. So I decided to launch Tiny Spark. I did my first story on this woman and her two children. Um, and before I began, I, I know lots of us are interested in how can we make money doing this, make a living at least. And so I approached the Chronicle of Philanthropy about underwriting my podcast, and they got on board from the beginning, which I've been thrilled about. And that's a great audience for me to be reaching because it's leading people in the nonprofit and philanthropic sector who care very much and know a lot about these issues, who are funding these initiatives. And so my podcast is posted on my Tiny Spark website as well as the Chronicle of Philanthropy's website. And so I was able to get some funding from them, and I began with this story of this woman who my voice is all shaky because I get a little nervous. But anyway, um, she is a mother from California who adopted the girl uh, sitting on the couch next to her from, um, and so she adopted this girl and wanted to adopt another girl. And so she began to do some investigations and found this girl that she wanted to adopt so the other one would have a sister. And she began to immediately suspect that there was something fraudulent about this adoption because she began to get paperwork about this little girl, the infant sitting on her lap, a girl named Hazel. And to me, she embodies everything about what I'm trying to do with this initiative because she underwent a years-long process trying to find out if this girl had been stolen from her birth mother. And she, at any point when she was getting this paperwork, could have just taken the girl anyway back home to the U.S and raised her, but she said, I couldn't do that. And so when she began to raise questions, uh, the government kicked her out of the country. She had been living with the two girls as she was waiting for the adoption procedures to go through. And I'm gonna play just a little piece of audio when she went back to Guatemala to visit this girl to see how she was doing. She found out that the little girl had been put into an orphanage. And here's what she has to say about that. Do I just click the icon? Let me, uh, this works. She was really sick. She had gotten a rash um, that had gotten infected on her face. Um, she had, you know, kind of dried food in her hair. I could tell she hadn't been bathed for I don't even know how long. And I could tell just from her expression that she probably had never been out of her crib. And 
a very long time, so it was really hard to see her like that. It was awful. I wanted to just run out of there with her, but I couldn't. But you did get her out of there. I did within 24 hours, yeah. And I, I assisted in getting the place closed down because we found out later that they were only feeding the children um, like a nutritional supplement mixed with just say mixed with water. Um, so again, just taking a seemingly good idea, international adoption, and looking at its underside, which is corruption, child trafficking, and fraud. Uh, I then became very interested in what we call socially responsible companies. And uh, many of you are giggling already. For those of you who aren't familiar with Tom's Shoes, they are a for-profit company, multi-million dollar company, that promises if you buy a pair of the shoes, they will give a pair to a child in need. And I was really intrigued by him, mostly because of that play pump story. There was so much resonance there with me with the imagery of smiling children, of a charismatic social entrepreneur who you are seeing here in this picture, Blake McCoskey. And I wanted to just take a look at them and see what was this all about. So I undertook, again, another kind of months-long investigation into Tom's shoes questioning who are getting these shoes and why. Blake McCoskey contends there are millions and millions of children around the world who don't have shoes to wear. Many people would say that's not true. Um, and looking at what was compelling him to do this and reminding people that this is a for-profit company, this is not a charity, and can we really do good with our dollars? So now uh, on Thursday, I'm gonna release my next podcast and an eight-minute version will air on The World on Thursday about medical volunteers who went to Haiti, a very well-intentioned group of people. Many of them had no experience in international disaster medicine, and that had very severe repercussions for patients, including this woman, who you see here, having surgery with no anesthesia. This was taken by a photojournalist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's taking place in a parking lot. You can see a white sheet being held up by a woman behind her. And I spoke to the photojournalist who said the screams emanating from this woman were something to behold. And here is my promo for this piece that'll air next Thursday. Do I, what do I do? Yep. Next time on Tiny Spark. When an earthquake struck Haiti, surgeons from around the world flew in to try and help. Everybody that showed up showed up with good intentions. And many showed up with everything they needed to save lives, but other surgeons arrived empty-handed. They didn't bring any supplies, any medication, any anesthesia. They didn't bring water, they didn't bring food. They thought that shelter would be provided, that all they had to do was show up and say, I'm a doctor, where can I do surgery? And it doesn't work like that. And not every surgeon had the training or experience to work in the chaos of an unfolding crisis. I saw some decisions that infuriated me. And in many instances, I confronted my colleagues about this because I thought it was the wrong intervention, it was the wrong medical judgment. Medical volunteers in a crisis zone. That's next time on Tiny Spark. The audio's better. I don't know why that was all, <laughs> but I, um, I don't know. It sounded a little overmodulated, but anyway, I hope that audio was okay for everybody. Anyway, um, so 
I'm just gonna, my time is up, and um, I just wanna end with this image, because I started with the play pump. And again, we look at this and see a little girl being helped. Uh, she's got a prosthetic, which makes her very lucky in Haiti. Um, she's gonna need many, many more, maybe 30 more in her lifetime. But if you look at this image a little more closely, and if we could zoom in on it, you'll see that there is a infant being held or a toddler being held by a man in the back of the room who is also an amputee. To the left, you can just make out another, that's a limb that's been amputated, looks like from a child. And then, when, if you zoom in on this picture, this couple here, the woman seated and the man behind her, have looks of kind of real horror on their faces. And as it turned out, I found out in looking at some of the studies, there's very little data that came out of Haiti about the medical response there. But of the data that is available, many people who know a lot more about the medical response than I do said that many of the amputations, there was up to 4,000 done in Haiti, were avoidable. And so I look at that and I, it, it seems that a lot of good is being done there, but I also look at that and wonder if there was avoidable harm done. Um, thank you. <laughs> So really ambitious stuff and, and, and difficult to do. Um, I think the things that struck me about Amy's work initially were uh, the ambition of the reporting. Um, it's just her. I mean, she doesn't really have a foreign bureau behind her to do this. The other one is that um, um, uh, I love Amy's interviewing style. You should really listen to her work. And the other one, too, is that um, the technical quality is really excellent. I mean, there's a presence to the audio that's really, really special. Those are the things that I notice as someone who just worked casually with you, and, and it's, it's really impressive. So I've asked every one of the producers here to put together some rules of the road. Like, what do you learn? You know, like, what are, what are your big rules? So Amy, I'm going to pull up your oh, okay. first maxims, and you can walk us through these real quick. So, okay, so these, this is the, some of the beginnings of takeaways from here that we hope are going to be really useful. So. Yeah, I'll just stand here with you. Yeah. I just couldn't see. Um, yeah, I just think that um, I... I can't emphasize enough, I took a Media Bistro course, I'm not paid by them, about a media startup, like doing a business plan for media startup on Media Bistro, it was fabulous. But so many of the participants didn't share their ideas, they, they expressed their reluctance, like somebody's gonna take my idea. And I would just encourage you, I think that there can be that culture when you have an idea that you wanna launch that I better not share it with anybody because somebody's gonna steal it. Nobody's gonna steal your idea. If they do, they can't do it as well as you can. And the, the benefits of talking about your idea with just about everybody you can, far outweighs any risk that somebody's gonna steal your idea. So I just kind of throw that out there as one thing that I really believe in. And I found that bloggers have been really helpful in getting word out about my stories and people who have seemingly kind of, even I might even call them obscure or set to a very small specific audience are incredibly helpful. And most, many of my referrals that I get when I look at the analytics have come from these small blogs. And so that's an amazing thing. We talk about distribution. We start talking about out, working outside of the public radio networks. There are so many opportunities, as you probably all well know, online, in social media, to really get the word out in a very effective way. I've had listeners from 120 different countries. Um, that's a whole other thing to think about. There's a huge international appetite out there. Um, Again, you know, like I said, I, I took the Media Bistro class to do my business plan. So helpful, just making me answer, do my research about, you know, the industry, what I'm doing and why, makes you answer really tough questions. And I am, I, I got a SoundCloud fellowship 
this year, so they gave me some money, which was nice, but I, I'm telling you that as kind of full disclosure. But um, I do find their record button incredibly helpful for two ways. I've spent a lot of money in the past year on this initiative hiring stringers and hiring studios to interview guests remotely. But I've used SoundCloud's record button with guests now. They put up their iPhone headpiece, just plug it into the line in, and I've gotten broadcast quality audio. My next piece that's coming out, two of the interviews I did, I just did hit, had them hit record on SoundCloud. They uploaded the audio to me. It's a dream, it's awesome. And Facebook has been a wonderful source. Of, you know, However we feel about Facebook, I find I get a lot more referrals. I think there's something to be said when your friends post something and say, I like this. It works. It's just I find more highly effective than Twitter as a, as a referral source for stories. Thank you. So uh, one other thing, and Amy, I'm going to come back to you during uh, uh, the Q&A, but I, I, I want you to unpack a little bit about um, this whole notion of openness and source development, especially with your Tom Shoe story, which was really remarkable what you were able to do. Um, so good. Uh, okay, so um, uh, one of the most uh, dangerous people producing uh, radio right now is Jesse Thorne. Um, Je you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little Jesse story that you've never heard, but maybe you have, uh, but not from me. Um, so when you go when you go around, you talk to stations, you talk with network people. Uh, folks will say, you know, you know who we ought to you people ought to watch because there's you got to worry, and it's like Jesse Thorne. There's this guy in his apartment in LA, talking to some of the top names in entertainment, some of the most creative, cutting edge people, uh, Terry Gross better be really worried. Those, that's a quote I hear again and again. So Jesse has been able to do something by himself that nobody else is doing. It's really pretty amazing. So Jesse, you wanna drive or do you want me to drive? Why don't you drive? Okay. I'll I have just your, and I have sit your at this cut, table. I have your links up here. So. Okay, great. So it's not. It's cool to be. Um, it's cool to be at this conference. I think John alluded to PRPD. We just came from PRPD. It's sort of like being at like a Moody Blues concert, I would say, <laughs> and just in terms of the clientele. And here, I feel as though I have been dropped into Etsy.com. So <laughs> I prefer the second. Um, more cute girls with glasses. Um, so I'll just give you an outline of what I've done in my career. My show, which is now called Bullseye, my public radio show, uh, started as my college radio show at the University of California, Santa Cruz, when I was a sophomore in college about 12 years ago. And we did it, we like, you know, I mean, our college radio station was reasonably popular for a college radio station. After I graduated from school, um, I moved back home to San Francisco, where I'm from, and I sort of had this conversation with my then girlfriend, now wife, that sort of went, me, it's a little sad to go back to Santa Cruz and do my college radio show when I'm graduated, sort of like the last year's starting football quarterback wearing his Letterman jacket in the parking lot. <laughs> and uh, my, then my wife said to me, well, it's not like you're doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and so I kept doing my show. Um, and when podcasting got invented, I started podcasting at the end of 2004, basically just because I figured it would take me 90 minutes a week, maybe, and if I could get 100 listeners out of that or something like that, it seemed like it was probably worth it. Um, around 2006, 2005, 2006, I um, started, uh, I had a little trial run on WNYC in New York of a sort of best of selection of my show um, that turned into a, a weekly 
uh, uh, run on WNYC in New York and um, a distribution deal with Public Radio International. And when those things happened, up to that point, I had made no money from the show. And I, 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 at, at that point, I was producing the show from home, um, doing mostly phone interviews with some equipment that I had bought by selling my car for $3,000. It was not a nice car. Um, and, uh, and so I thought when I signed a distribution deal, like I knew there were other public radio shows that were with networks. And I knew that the people that worked on them got paid. So I figured that somehow when you got a distribution deal, that meant that at least one full-time income would come from it. <laughs> and then I got my, uh, my financial projections from PRI, and they were for like $10,000 a year. And I said to myself, oh, fuck. <laughs> so that's when I realized that I had better start making money myself, or I would never get to do this. So... At the time, I was working as a receptionist at a nonprofit and just doing this at nights and weekends. And I started fundraising myself. And immediately, I started diversifying my portfolio, so to speak. So we started adding shows to what became MaximumFun.org, which is my podcast network. Um, and the reason I did that was because I knew that if I was trying to fundraise, it would be a lot easier to fundraise for a group of shows around an idea that brought, you know, that were able to cross-promote and, you know, interbreed and so on and so forth than uh, it would be just to try and get people to give up money just for one show that they like that constitutes, even if they're super into it, an hour a week of their life. So I started a podcast network. And then I moved to Los Angeles. I started a new show. So at this point, I host, um, fast forward to 2012, our network is about, um, I think it's 10 shows now, about half of which involve some direct involvement from me, half of which don't. Um, some of them are produced all over the country. They're all sort of built around a, uh, a sort of thematic, a brand spirit, or whatever you want to call it. But um, you know, many of them are independent, and they're all owned by their creators. So I, I wanted to start by playing. I, we were supposed to bring audio clips, but I thought, who wants to listen to audio clips? Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so Dink. I. This is part of Jesse's charm. Yeah. <laughs> so I I want to play this. This is uh this is a video that we made for basically the way that we raise money at MaximumFun.org is the traditional public radio way. We have pledge drives. I mean, we use social media probably a lot more than most stations do, but we have pledge drives that last two weeks, and we raise money specifically through for uh, sustaining donors, which is a new thing, relatively new thing. It's what we've always done just because it keeps our fundraising costs down. So we're trying to get people to give five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month um, or 20 or give some that give 200 a month. Um, so l let's take a look at this promo here. What's that? This is what you get for not yeah, bringing audio. Yeah, there you go. There we go, good. Huh. There, we, there go. we are. Yeah, now we're talking tech. turkey. Look at that handsome bastard. Well, the sun didn't shine. Down on Calvary's mountain. Well, the sun didn't shine. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. Special guest on the program this week, one of my all-time favorites, 
one of the greatest artists of modern times. I do the show in my apartment, so it seems important to me to keep it a classy operation. I think it's easier for people to take an interviewer seriously if he's got on a necktie and a pocket square. Tell me when you figured out that you were doing the thing that you wanted to be doing. In the past year, we probably made 100, 125 hours of uh, programming. Of course, we give it all away for free, so we pretty much rely completely on people's voluntary donations to support us. Oh, I enjoyed your answer to that question. We've had some really awesome guests this year. Uh, Rob Corddry, Jenna Fisher, Jeffrey Tambor, John Hodgman, Jonathan Colton. When we have support from listeners, we have the resources to bring these really awesome people in. It seems like two of the big themes in your work are um, finding and sort of digging. Oh, we have awesome thank you gifts for this pledge drive. Uh, five bucks a month and up, and you get the special pledge drive only t-shirt. Ten bucks a month or more, and you get probably the best pledge drive gift we've ever given out. Uh, mustache TV, which comes with rule book. Mustache TV is so fucking mustache. great. The only adhesive mustache that makes your television better than it already is. There's a really amazing quality of stillness in your work. Can you tell me about how you achieve that? That's our mascot. and click on donate. Your support's the reason that the show exists. Without it, I don't know where I'd be. Have you ever had mites? <laughs> so at, at this point, our right? at this point, our donation base is uh, about. Oh, it's a few hundred thousand dollars a year, like three or four, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, and that's based on this family of shows and very traditional public radio fundraising. Um, in addition to the former Sound of Young America and now Bullseye, which is a, in some ways a traditional public radio show, there's a lot of, um, again, you know, uh, like Amy, we're doing very important work with dick jokes and <laughs> so on and so forth. So... Um, so we have this we but we have this family we have this family of shows that all have a very similar theme and that has also bred a community and we've been very community minded since the very beginning with the idea that you know nurturing our relationship with fans was going to be the way that we um, not only meant more to the people who used our services, you know, or listened to our shows, but also meant enough to those people that they were willing to give money to a for-profit company, you know, we are a for-profit, um, that they did not have to give in order to get the shows. So we give out all our shows 100% for free, no DRM, full back catalogs, et cetera, et cetera. All these people are just giving us money just as a sort of a thank you. And so we knew that if we wanted people to do that, we had to have a deeper relationship than just blasting something at them. And that led to something called Max FunCon, which is an annual sort of conference slash convocation slash whatever um, that is, it, it's like a weekend creativity retreat slash comedy festival is how I would describe it. It's in the woods in Southern California. We're just about to do one in the Poconos uh, west of New York. Um, and... This is a little promo video that we made a couple years ago for uh, a past Max FunCon that's hosted by Jordan Morris, who co-hosts my comedy show, Jordan Jesse Go. Oh. oh, that sucks. <laughs> Let's see if we do it again. It's better when it plays. You know, it is. It's really, very it's compelling really when really it plays. Good.
Hi, I'm Jordan Morris, and you're about to take a trip with me to beautiful Lake Arrowhead, California for Max Fun Con. We've got a myriad of activities, everything your little heart desires. We've got classes, workshops, crafting, food, beverages, friendships, fun, sports, and of course, a general air of sexuality. Yes, Max FunCon is sure to delight. It's just like camp for grown-ups, but we replace the jerks with comedians and luminaries. Hope you can make it this year. So this has done two things for us. One, it obviously reinforces our relationship with our closest people. You know, the people to whom our shows, shows are the most important come and physically spend time with us and connect with us, and as important as that, connect with each other. Two, it's a major revenue source. Um, you know, people pay a significant amount of money to come and do this, and they're happy to do it because it's the, their opportunity to connect with the other people that share the same passions that they do. So in addition to all of these things at MaximumFun.org, I also run this menswear website called Put This On. And we funded that through Kickstarter. Um, our most recent season, we funded at about $75,000. Um, which paid for six 10-minute episodes. We're able to do Kickstarter for that because it's very project-oriented relative to the sort of, um, uh, what do they call that in nonprofits, that kind of fund, general funds, um, rather than the kind of continuing operating funds money that's needed to run a weekly radio show. So essentially what we've done over all of this time is do something that I sometimes like to call reverse entrepreneurship, which is, you know... Is that called growing, going broke? Yeah. A, like a real entrepreneur um, looks at the marketplace, identifies missing pieces in the marketplace, and endeavors to replace them. Um, through the course of my 12-year career, I have thought of a thing I would like to do, started doing it, and then come up with a scheme to pay for it. Um, you know, it, at this point, six years into being on public radio, my public radio income has grown from $12,000 a year to $18,000 a year or something. Um, the fact of the matter is that I, I don't know. I mean, I don't see how I'm ever going to make any fucking money out of being on public radio. <laughs> and it's also a lot of work. If I had it to do over, I might not have started with a public radio show. You know, our, my comedy show that I just alluded to, Jordan, Jesse, Go, um, is much lower cost. It's equally fun to me. I love doing both shows. Um, and it raises as much money as my show that has, uh, you know, three full-time people working on it and a studio and an office and all that shit. So... I guess my uh, my moral or lesson for this. I picture maxims up. Oh yes, um, it my the first sort of basic uh, thing that I would underscore is if you just want to have a job, just have a job. <laughs> Don't feel bad about it because all of this stuff is stupid, crazy hard, and I work as much on my business as I do on my creative endeavors. Um, it has taken me twelve years. Uh, so the first six years of that, I was not making anything. I only started making a decent living maybe three or four years ago. So first of all, if you just want to have health insurance, just have that. Just get a job and keep it and do a good job. 
you can do stuff on the side. The second thing is, if you want to just do something on the side that you believe passionately in, then just do something on the side that you believe passionately in. That's tremendous. You're adding to the world. You know, the, one of the great things about the internet existing is that you can add to the world. However, if you're serious about making this uh, your career, making making your thing a career, um, that's when these maxims apply, which are, first of all, if you don't ask for money, and when I say ask for money, I don't mean just in a philanthropic way. We happen to use at Maximum Fun, uh, you know, a, a model that's based on, um, a model that's based on the public radio model, um, which people understand well and has worked well for us, but in whatever context, if you don't ask for money, you're not going to get it. If you don't try and make a sale, if you don't allow the money part of it to be part of your plan, then you will never make any money. Nobody's just going to surprise you with a pile of money. Right. Jesse, I'm going to ask you to keep going yeah, quickly. Yeah, sure. Okay. And if you don't have an audience, which is to say if you're not making your show for anyone, then you won't have anyone to ask for money. Now, some of you might be lucky. You might be doing something that has a uh, sort of a philanthropic angle that you can you know, um, connect with some person that cares a lot about it and gives you a bunch of money. God bless you for that. Otherwise, if your thing is interviewing comedians, there's no foundation for the promotion of interviews with comedians, <laughs> then what you're going to have to do is find people to monetize, people that care about what you make. And finally, if you don't have a two-way relationship with your audience, a real, if you don't mean something to your audience in 2012 on the internet, in the world of media, you're fucked. Because there's no, you're not, you're, there's nothing to monetize if you don't have a real, if you don't, if you're not important to your audience. Because the fact of the matter is that media that isn't important to the audience is dead, is, or at the very least withering. You know, there was a time when you would just watch Veronica's Closet because it came on after Seinfeld, but nowadays that time has passed because somebody just TiVo's Seinfeld and watches that and doesn't have to watch Brooke Shields pretend like she's funny. So she's great, I mean, beautiful lady. She's super nice, I met her one time, but she's not funny at all. So you have to, you have to make something that is relevant to people. And I think a lot of people think of their work in, from their own perspective and fail to think of it from their audience's perspective. Wow, you're sounding like a programmer now. That scared me a little bit. Okay, Pocket No, Square I'm not, because I like my show. <laughs> That's good. Okay, good. Great stuff. We're going to come back to that. And then I want to I, I introduce uh, ben, ben Walker. Uh, I hope most of you here know Ben and Ben's work. Um, my little story is Ben once convinced me to play an island salesman for a crazy radio drama. <laughs> and it was, uh, well, I hope you never find that audio. <laughs> so, Ben. Okay. Can you push the buttons? Yes, I can push, I can push the buttons. That's great. Uh, that's not first, though. That's first. Okay. So uh, I took all the swear words out of my thing for nothing. But uh, <laughs> my name is Benjamin Walker, and my... Uh, thing is called Too Much Information, and it airs on the radio station WFMU out of Jersey City, and it's also a podcast. And it's really great to be here and hear so many people use the word podcast in a positive way. Sylvan yesterday and Ira last night, I mean, it's been years, like, whenever I say that word, like, someone will move to the other end of the bar. It's just, <laughs> I really do feel like we're moving forward. But living in New York, 
where I live, I walk through a lot of film sets and television sets, and it's always remarkable to me just how many people it takes to make that thing. And I think even though we have so much amazing technology at our fingertips, we still lose sight of just how artist and DIY friendly audio and radio is as a medium. With just a microphone and some editing software, you can make anything. And now, thanks to podcasting, which people aren't making fun of anymore, we don't even have to be on the radio for people to hear our thing. And I think that all of you people out here, there's really nothing keeping you from being up here with the three of us. But I know some of you have trekked out here for at least a few answers. So I'm going to try to make you see what is staring you right in the face. So WFMU is a listener-supported uh, volunteer radio station. And that means I do my show for no money. I started uh, Too Much Information in the fall of 2009, and I'm currently finishing up uh, program number 67 for Monday. So I am basically been doing this for three years now, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of hours. And sometimes I spend my own money for tape syncs, or I see Julie from uh, Destination DIY. I did a trade with her, so she did one for me in Portland. And I did one, I never met you, hi, and uh, uh, in New York. Yeah, but uh, uh, I don't have a trust fund and I don't have a sponsor, but I do freelance for uh, other radio outlets. This year I did a piece for the BBC, I did a piece for Radiolab, I did a series of uh, podcasts for The Guardian, a philosophy podcast, where they have money for that, I don't know. But uh, I also contribute to big money shows like 99% Invisible, but really uh, all of my time and my heart and soul goes into my volunteer podcast. And that still kind of sounds sad. Um, there used to be... <laughs> There used to be these things back in the day called vanity recording studios. And this is where you'd find ads for them in comic books and uh, crappy magazines. And these are the studios where guys who just so believed in what they had to say, even though they were rejected by every single recording studio label, they would go to record their masterpieces. And um, online, you'll find websites that uh, will have, have a lot of these today. And some of them are terrible, but some of them are totally transcendent. And uh, I think that. Basically, I'm, I kind of see myself as one of those modern-day ones. I'm like the guy with the, 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 the vanity uh, uh, recording uh, record or podcast. But thanks to the internet, I don't have to go at least find this route to get the stuff out there. I can do it on my own. When I was on the plane on the way here, I maybe had the altitude, too many cocktails, and I was, got paranoid that maybe Julie put me on this panel because that way you'd at least have the one example of what not to do. <laughs> so you could walk out of here and think, okay, that Jessica, Amy, that's really awesome, but, uh, uh, you know, all right, let's not, let's not do that. But really, I think that there's, a, there's just a number of ways that you can gauge success. You know, uh, uh, having an empire like Jesse or an amazing Kickstarter campaign like my friend Roman Mars. But there's really just one at the end of the day. And uh, Jesse alluded to that earlier. It's like, are you doing what you want to be doing? And uh, that, that really is what it comes down to. And on my show, I can do whatever I want. I can hunt down my heroes and, and make them talk to me. I have a lot of writers and artists and photographers and cartoonists, people I've always wanted to meet. Sometimes there are even people that don't like to do interviews, like the photographer Richard Mizrak I had on recently, or the comedy genius Chris Morris. And I also get to interview my friends. I'll talk to them about their lives or love the universe. Sometimes I'll even put my ex-girlfriends on. I have a few regulars on the show. Uh, my friend Chris is always on, and he has this strange uh, national security job, and he shares all these wild stories about uh, stuff that's going on behind the scenes in government. 
in business, and I think half the time he's probably pulling my leg. But that doesn't matter because I like to make stuff up too. And uh, uh, sometimes I think if I had to talk to real people every day, I would get really bored. So I like to make people up to interview. And uh, I have a lot of fake people on. I have uh, <laughs> uh, fake scenarios, fake radio dramas. And I like to mix it all up. Um, but my favorite thing, and I've only been able to do this a few times, is that when you can take something fake from the internet, because you know we're always getting these things that we are hoaxes, but people will believe it and pass them around. Like this one, this was a, uh, uh, a website dedicated for uh, people to walk uh, Christians who go up in the rapture with their pets when they're, maybe you remember this one for a few years ago. So I made uh, something based on that. I'm gonna play you the beginning to it. Amy Pearl is a Brooklyn dog lover, and one day, someone sent her a funny dog link. EternalEarthboundPets.com. It's like, you help Christians. I don't really care about Christians, but I do care about <laughs> animals. And you help them because when they go to the rapture, they need someone to take care of their pets. And this site helps hook, up, hook them up with, with people who aren't going to go to heaven who will come and get their pets. And I was like, I could do this. I could. And... So I posted something on Urban Hound so that Christians in the New York area with pets would look at it and find me, and they did. There are a lot of born-agains in New York City, and you know what's weird, especially like Williamsburg and Bay Ridge. Tonight we're on our way to visit Laura, a young woman who recently emailed Amy about her dog, Cola. All right, let's, she said buzzer five. Hello. Hi, Laura. It's, it's Amy to uh, meet, meet Cola. Okay, I'll buzz you up. Hello? Hi. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Hello, hi. She's very nice. Oh, she's, oh, she's, oh, she's nice. Well, do you want to take her on a walk, and then we can talk about That, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. So let me just get her leash on. Oh, she's strong. Okay, I think we're ready to go. So basically getting people, imagining someone listening to this and then going to the internet so, saying this can't be real and finding the fake website that backs up your fake story, it's so much fun. And I, I, I really enjoy doing that. But unfortunately, if I go to someone and I tell them that this is what my show was about, they would just, it would be like telling them I have a podcast. They would move to the other end of the bar and they would never want to listen. <laughs> And that's why I think you really have to be careful when you set out to do this, how you're going to present what you're doing. And uh, I chose the name Too Much Information because I wanted people to think that it was a show about digital culture and internet and technology stuff. And you know, these things are a focus of the show and uh, they're important to the show, but uh, can you move, move more? There's more. Yes. Yes. But um, I think doing a tech podcast, I'd rather inject motor oil into my veins. <laughs> but because uh, uh, I really think all of the best shows out there, the ones that we really love, they're shows about everything. But you have to give your audience something to grasp onto, especially at the beginning. No one would listen to my show if I called it Benjamin Walker's Deep Thoughts or Benjamin Walker talks to his friends and makes up silly little stories and sometimes interviews real people. <laughs> and uh, this is where I kind of think I failed. I didn't really put my heart, enough effort into the fake out thing because if I'm really supposed to be this media technology show, I should at least have a website by now, <laughs> which I don't. Um, uh, so 
I know this panel is called uh, Own Your Thing, but I think I want to come back to the fact that you have to start with making uh, your own thing first. And I just want to share two quick things that I've learned uh, by doing this. I think the first thing is, is that if you're going to swim in this pool, the big kids pool, you have to be ready to make a show. And making pieces, that's kind of like the baby pool or the training wheels. And making a show and making pieces are actually two entirely different things. And I think this is important to understand because we live in a world of viral content now. You can make a story or a thing, a cat video, and it can go viral. And millions of people will click on it and like it and tweet it. And a lot of people actually have figured this out. They know how to do it to an exact science. I mean, there's even companies that employ hundreds of people like BuzzFeed that just really know how to do this. And I think. It does, this, none of this stuff matters when you're talking about making a show because when you make this thing that everyone talks about and blogs and loves, you have to make another one. And then when you make the next one, a lot of people just won't care about it. And then you have to make another one. And I've noticed over the past few years that a lot of digital natives or younger people get very confused by this. They'll make one or two things, they'll get really popular and they'll be like, ah, yes, I'm the next Ira Glass. Where's the money truck? And then they, they like stand around for a while and then they just give up and get discouraged. It just doesn't work that way. The relationship we have with shows is a relationship that grows over time. And it's very different than the relationship we have with viral content. And in fact, I think this is actually one of the most powerful connections between radio before the internet changed everything and podcasts today. I think that radio shows before it also used to take a lot of time. I think every great show spent years before they really had an audience that believed in them and was ready to, to come see them live or, or you know, be, be a dedicated, full-fledged fan. And I think that's the same thing today. You have to realize, as Jesse alluded to earlier, it is going to be a lot of work. And you shouldn't start until you're ready to do that. In fact, I don't think you should start off thinking about a Kickstarter campaign. You should. And, you shouldn't even thinking about uh, building out you know, apps or websites. You really have to start with just focusing on making your thing first. Roman was telling me the other night that he knew that he was going to make 60 episodes first before he even asked people for money. And he even had people offering him money before that. So that's the, the, uh, the two things there. I think you want to start off making sure that you're focused on making your thing and building your audience. And that brings back to where I started off about the gauge of success, and that is, are you doing this? Are you making stuff that you want to make? Because if you're not, if you're going to compromise at the beginning, it's going to be terrible, and your audience will notice. That's it. Great. I wanted to ask uh, some crowd questions first before we, we start taking questions. So um, how many of you have given to a Kickstarter campaign? Wow. Woof. Wow. Okay. Watch How out. How many CPUs. of you sell on Etsy.com? <laughs> um, How many of you have put an owl on something? <laughs> how, how many of you have actually created Kickstarter campaigns? Oh, that's pretty decent. Okay. Uh, that's, that's really helpful. And um, how many of you almost exclusively listen to audio on a, a mobile device and not radio? Interested in some habits? Okay, oh, that's really, uh, really helpful. That's good. How many of you were familiar with any of the work from these three folks before you came here? Wow, okay, you guys are stars. This is really quite good. Well, not you, Ben, but that's okay. Um, Thanks, John. Okay, so was that too much information? No, I'm sorry. Um, so, the, so one of the questions I, I wanted to ask was, was the radio question. And, and um, you know, this really was a strong contrast, between, even though you work in radio, 
expand. I mean, you you you've tried so many different things, and um, and and Jesse, you're pretty harsh about the trade-off with radio. So, you know, given a choice, where spend your time in terms of the creativity and essentially building your own vision, where where would you recommend folks spend their time in terms of the payoff? And I just want to go down the line. Oh, I'm sorry. What are the choices? Or well, either radio or, or non-broadcast in terms of like just just doing a podcast based on your experience. Well, I think you can have a, I mean, the only way you're going to put food in your mouth is finding a balance. But I think if you're going to put any time into doing your own thing, that has to be just 100% no compromise your own thing and then try to make money doing other things. Um, what I'm trying, well, what I am doing is a hybrid. So um, like this next piece I said is going to have an eight-minute version on the world and then I will have the longer in-depth podcast online. And I think to me that is a really sensible, great way to do things because I'm bringing attention and credibility to the show. I'm getting access to a public radio audience through the broadcast, but I'm also allowing myself to go in-depth and really investigate and interrogate issues the way I want to, which is kind of answering the thing is, this is what I really want to be doing, and have that exist online. And I think my feeling is, among the public radio outlets that I've spoken to, that's a very compelling model for them as well, to have material that exists on their shows that are, is actually broadcast and to have other material that exists online. Um, I started out on radio and thought that my career would be in broadcasting, in radio and television. And... To some extent, everything that I've done over the years has been an effort to fulfill that objective. Um, my experience has been that if you're making something show-like, which is, I agree completely with Ben, that you're not going to be able to make pieces and make money from them on the internet. Um, if you're making something show-like, you have to deal with structural issues in public radio that are, you know, endemic to the system uh, and are deeply problematic for people who are making shows that aren't funded by stations or foundations um, because or networks. The truth is that most of the big national shows are funded as a sort of uh, either through a sort of critical mass, as in the NPR news shows, or as a sort of loss leader for stations that are, you know, looking for something to establish their identity so that they can raise money based on national shows, mm -hmm. or they're getting their money f from a foundation. You know, like when I was at PRPD, I talked with the lady from Bird Note. I think it's called. She had these awesome fucking eagles. It was great. There was some like hawks or something. I don't even know. Something that eats other birds was there at the conference <laughs> indoors. It was awesome. So anyway, I talked to this lady. They're founded, they're funded by the National Bird Association, the NBA. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, and so if you're going to try and compete with those things, from a business perspective, which is what some folks like myself and, you know, to, to a great extent, Glenn Washington, um, it's very, very, very difficult because stations will give you 
uh, carry your show every, for an hour every week for a year and give you $300. So, and an hour is a lot of content to produce. So my experience has been that there are certainly valuable things about being on the radio. You know, Bullseye is an interview show. Um, and I would have had a really hard time, especially five years ago, booking the guests that I book if I wasn't able to say I'm a public radio show. But if I was doing something that didn't require that, I mean, I'm very passionate about public radio, but it's a the game is rigged. Because <laughs> um, the, so. the answer to that is what Ben has done, which is like, I can't get the guests, so I'll just make one up. Yeah. No, right? no, no, exactly. I would, I would, no, I want to actually push back on that because I think that I've never had someone turn me down in real people and never, ever, ever, ever. And no Chris one, Morris? Chris none, Morris turned me down like six times before he said yes. No, not, no one knows what WFMU is. Well, a lot of people know what WFMU is, but no one knows my show or podcast. People, if you approach them the right way, they will always say yes. And I, this <laughs> that has not been my experience. Uh, that has been my experience. <laughs> we may be trying to book different kinds of people. Okay. That's so, true. So, ben, um, so, so I would say that there's value in the prestige. Right. If that, and there's, there can be personal value in it. I know that for me, I care very much about being a public radio host. However, the question, if the question is one of financial sustainability or of just emotional sustainability, I would say unless you have a great offer on the table – Fuck the radio. Ben, how do you stay alive? So, um, <laughs> no, it's, no, I, but, I, but, I, but I'm, really, I'm really clear because you're, you're so um, insistent and rightfully so about your own creative vision, right? At FMU, you don't get paid for being on the air, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, this is, I think this is the question of avocation or vocation. Yeah, well, I alluded to that earlier. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work this year. I did a monthly podcast for The Guardian. I did a big piece for the BBC. I did, you know, uh, that, that Roman Mars guy. Man, he just pays a lot for 99% Invisible now. <laughs> uh, kidding. No, but it, it is a lot. But, uh, uh, and then, you know, just doing what everyone else does, freelance pieces. Ben, can I ask you a question? What, what, is, the, what is the value of being on FMU to you? Like, why did you choose to do it on a station which has a, you know, obviously an amazing reputation, but where you can't make money off of this show that you're putting so much time into. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, 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 you know, it, it, it's not as problematic as it sounds, but I think that there is a healthy model where maybe you can make a living doing other things and then have the show that you're doing. The problem that I didn't think about enough was that it just <laughs> takes every minute of your time to work on that, that thing. But uh, uh, initially, I think I was imagining that I could do both. I could have, sort of have something else and then uh, have that that I didn't have to worry about. Amy, you, you've chosen a very different path because your work, at least on the surface, has the, um, has the container of something that is more traditional journalism. But you've carved out a niche. So, um, but there, you know, one of your funders is the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and they cover this area really, really well. So what is it, what is it you try to do with a podcast and your audio that other people are not doing? Like, how do you how do you carve out an identity with that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
the Chronicle is doing a lot of great work in this area, but when I met with Stacy Palmer, the managing editor there, and told her the kinds of stories that I was interested in doing, she was very enthusiastic and felt, frankly, you know, that's the thing with one of my great challenges is that these stories just take a lot of time. You know, I've, I started this a year ago. This is my fourth podcast I'm putting out. Wow. So, and there's Are a number of reasons for that. <laughs> I could be more effective with my Are time. Are you losing audience between the podcasts? Mm-hmm. iTunes automatically unsubscribes people when there's no new episodes for a few months. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, but no, I, I'm not concerned that I'm losing audience. I think that I've been gaining audience, and um, you know, there's I'm continually getting people listening to my stories months and months after. And that's a whole other conversation that I find fascinating is how different it is posting a podcast as opposed to having a piece broadcast on radio. The posting the podcast, the life of the story is so much longer. And in fact, the real engagement begins in the weeks and months following that story when people start coming to it. Um, but that's another thing. So the Chronicle wants to be doing these stories. They don't have the resources oftentimes to devote to them. And so I said, I want to do that stuff. So she said, great, run with it. Um, and there was another little part of your question that I can't remember, but you know, and then the and you know the world too. They're very interested in these kinds of stories. And uh, after I get this piece up on Haiti volunteers next week, I'm going to be start doing a four-part series for the world, uh, kind of a, a co-production of sorts with Tiny Spark in the World, um, looking at global health and development issues. I'll be doing international travel and really looking critically at a lot of those initiatives. So I'm hoping that might be a partnership that continues. Um, and again, enabling myself to have that hybrid broadcast and online. Great. I, we, we have some time for. I just want to get to a sure. couple of questions because there's a lot of time. Let me go in the way way back. What are your numbers? I mean, can you speak up? What are your numbers like? Can you go through and just say how many people listen to your podcast? Like what your numbers are? So the question is, what are the numbers? Uh, um, the the stats machine at, at WFMU is is kind of messed up, but uh, <laughs> it, we we can do like by month. So I it it's it's getting around. When the show goes up on Monday, by that Friday, it's usually almost like twelve to fifteen thousand, and then so for each one, and then uh, over the month, that's where the machine kind of breaks down, and uh, 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 yeah, (laughs) so we're working on getting that fixed. But still, I I think that those initial downloads that that uh, you see at the beginning. and that ranges like sometimes it'll be like higher like up to like 25 when Jad shout give me a shout out in the piece in the hour man the power of the radio lab that was like uh, 30,000 downloads a day for like two weeks straight Amy yeah I have to say I don't I don't I'm not obsessive about my analytics I mean the last time I looked I mean I think I'm generally getting a few thousand a month um, and listeners from you know 120 countries or so um, that, and again, and you know, a few, I think two to 300 viewers a day. Um, and a lot of that is still coming from that Tom story, <laughs> people still finding it and comment, commenting on it. So, um, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining a beautiful world where I could live off of that, but it depends on the show. Um, uh, our bigger shows, Judge John Hodgman, um, my brother, my brother and me are in the, Sort of that, I usually count by like how many people you can depend on to download in the first week for a given episode. It's like 60,000 ish, bullseyes less than that, 30, 35. Um, Jordan Jesse goes about 30. I mean, it all depends. One of the reasons that we have a network is so that we can aggregate those numbers to get to a place where we can 
reasonably sell advertising against them. Okay. And, and it's, it's important to note that when you get featured somewhere, it always goes up. Like if iTunes puts you on the front page, all of a sudden it's been downloaded like 120,000 times. But I like those... I'm okay with the ones being lower. Like I'm, I'm very proud to have you know twelve, fifteen thousand people. That's I think that's amazing. I, I mean, I, you hear a lot of people talking about well, you know, radio has millions of, of listeners, but I, I I don't know. I'm I'm very happy with where it's at right now. Okay, that's great. Other questions? Yes, you. Um, I'm curious about um, the cult of personality in terms of podcasting. A lot of people get really obsessive over Clark Marin's podcast, and there seem to be a lot of imitations of that um, that have gone. I've tried to listen to a lot of them, or I'm just kind of frustrating to listen to. So, if any or all of you could speak to this sort of argument for off the cuff, kind of riffing on the mic versus a structured podcast show and the pros and cons of each of those things. I, I've actually I've worked with Mark and um, I, uh, Nick White, who's here, and I produce the public radio version of his show, and he's been a friend of mine for a long time. Um, and I would say that in podcasting, as in all media where you, there are many, many choices, your goal is to get people to really care about your product. So they have to be invested in the brand, and whether the brand is personal whether it's Mark Maron's brand is deeply, deeply personal. Every one of Mark Maron's episodes is about Mark Maron, right? <laughs> Irrespective of who the guest is. So people who love his show care about Mark Maron or whether the brand is more theoretical. I mean, I don't, don't think that people who really love Fresh Air, it's, about a it's not about a personal relationship with Terry Gross. Obviously, they think she does an amazing job, because she does. But it's about the things that that show represents. You know, people have deep connections to NPR. It's not necessarily because of personal connections. And so the question for me, in terms of your production, is how can you generate that connection in an amount of time that you can afford to spend doing it relative to the amount of money that's coming back. So if I use the example of Bullseye, which is a relatively impersonal show, not for a public radio show, but compared to anything else, um, versus Jordan Jesse Go, which is my comedy show, which is a much more personal show. One is much more edited, one is much more focused, one takes a lot more time, one takes a lot more money, that's Bullseye. One is just me and my best friend making dick jokes for an hour and a half. And they both have a very similar fundraising impact for us because people respond to the fact that one of them is personal and they care about us. On the other hand, people do respond to Bullseye where they're getting, you know, produced insights and so on. Amy? Yeah, I just think it's just important, you know, if, if this is a question because you're interested in doing this kind of thing, I just think it's really important to, to be yourself. And I know for myself, I'm not comfortable uh, going off script that, you know, I'm, it's, I kind of come from a traditional broadcast radio background and that's what I like to do and that's what I'm comfortable doing. I think that's where my strength is. And I could try to be hip and like, you know, go off script and, you know, I wish I could do that, but it's just not me and it would just wouldn't work. So um, I just think it's important to, to do what is what you're comfortable with and, and what works for you because that's going to resonate with listeners. But I, I would say that comes across in your work because you're going after stories and issues that you care about that you want to see more attention drawn to and that's your personality in there. I mean, you're, mm -hmm. of course, a, a reporter, but I would say that personal interest comes through. You mean, I, w I would say there's other ways to access the kind of passion that we're talking about. If you do a show about Harley Davidson's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people go to Sturgis, North Dakota, is it? Right. 
to to get together and just like be with other people that own this one type of motorcycle, right? If you do a great show about Harley Davidsons, you're tapping into that passion that these people have for that idea. It doesn't matter whether they care about you; they care about the stuff that you're doing. Right. If you're doing a good job. And one of the executives of that motorcycle uh, museum uh, works in public radio. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, what? One last question. One last one. Oh, come on. It's gonna, oh, right there. Okay. Oh, cool. Um, really quick question. Um, promotion. When you are trying to build your audience, um, what are some of the best rules of thumb for building your audience? Um, uh, and and, and a, a corollary to that question is, how do you benefit the most off of something of yours that goes viral without being like a one-hit wonder or a no-hit wonder or something? <laughs> I, I can. Yeah. Um, I would say number one, the best way to uh, mar pro to promote or market your work is to make work that is remarkable. Um, and when I say remarkable, I don't just mean good, but the kind of thing that someone would talk to someone else about. Um, that's, I think, one of the great strengths of Mark Maron's podcast, for example. I mean, I think Mark is exceptionally talented as well, but one of the things that has been such a huge success is that he has created moments that people want to tell each other about, and that promotes his show for him. Um, the other thing I would do is I would say, and you know, I think it's the same way with Radiolab. Like Radiolab is so crazily produced to the average person's listener that it's like from a space. And so when they hear it, once they get it, they want to tell somebody about it. Right. Um, and you know, or This American Life where people want to share those stories that they heard on This American Life. So there's that element. And that can be something about the format. It can be something about what happens in episodes, you know, but that's something that you want to consider. The other thing is, I think, you want to access communities that already exist um, that are related to your content. So, you know, we built the audience of The Sound of Young America in the early days largely by, you know, accessing the fan communities of the people that were guests on our shows. Um, and those are groups of people who want to hear your content, just like Amy was talking about. Um, and it, you have to build real relationships with those people. You can't just drop in and be like, yeah, I did an interview, boom, I'm out. Right. But if you have real relationships with those people, then, you know, like I, if I send a show that I think is really good, that's an interview with a comedian to the blog Splitsider that's all about for comedy nerds, I know that they'll post it and that will access a group of people who are passionate about some of the things that are covered on my show. So accessing communities that already exist is, mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, the, the, based on the data we see at PRX, I got to tell you, that's like a golden piece of advice. Think about who is at the core interest of what you're doing. I'm Tech. always getting blogged on the real fake websites. <laughs> that somehow seems appropriate. And I, Amy, how about you? Yeah, I, I just think, um, again, I've, uh, with my international adoption story and with Tom's story, I got interviewed on a couple of public radio programs about my investigations, and that was obviously incredibly helpful in terms of driving traffic to it and, again, lending credibility to what I was doing. Um, and so, again, I keep coming back to that. If there's any way that you can somehow make a little thing that could be broadcast on public radio, if you're doing audio that just makes sense. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there if you package it well and present it well and um, you know give them something, good content to put on and then that will, and say here's just a little taste of it. Now go to the website to hear more. I, I think also, I, yeah. I would also add to what I was saying before that in online communities, recipro reciprocal relationships are very important. 
and you know think of blog roles you know so having relationships with other people who do what you do seeing them as your peers and partners in a community of people that care about the things that you care about rather than seeing them as like the competition or whatever is very central to i think online community values so if you can you know if you can honestly be friends with people that do things that are like you your audiences can feed into each other you know when i when i have you know like i have relationships with people at boing boing for example i know ben does too and it's an, a real honest relationship built on mutual respect and understanding i help them with their things they help me with with my things and because it goes both ways, it helps both parties. So the, the relationship notion, and I, and I want to wrap up, but the relationship notion is one that um, I, I, I would have to emphasize as another really key takeaway. And so what's the nature of that relationship? Is that don't make the mistake that traditional broadcasting does, which is to think of the audience as a one-way receptor. You build that relationship. You'd be surprised what you're going to get back. They're going to change what you do. And I encourage you to talk to Amy again about the role that her relationship with an audience played in her advancing the story about Tom Shoes. It's really a remarkable story about how to work relationships. So I want to thank everybody here, uh, Jesse Thorne, uh, Amy Costello, and Benjamin Walker. <laughs>